Well, good morning, and let me add my welcome to you. Happy summer. My name's Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you and to worship the Lord with you this morning. Some, some years ago, uh, I spent two weeks in Colorado in the summer. I was with my friends, and uh, we were attending a conference together. But on one of the mornings, we decided that it would be nice to go on a hike. Uh, at that time, I hadn't had much experience hiking. I still don't. Um, but I, why'd you laugh? <laughs> but I was about 18 or 19 years old, just graduated from high school, and I was in pretty good shape. So I put on my tennis shoes and my sunglasses and my hat and started to walk out the door. But before I even crossed the threshold of the door, I distinctly remember my friend asking me, aren't you going to bring some water? And so I rolled my eyes and grabbed a little 12-ounce water out of the fridge and started walking toward the trail. Now, when the hike began, it was easy enough. Um, There were some mountain bikers going by us. There were some young families with children taking a leisurely walk up the trail. The flowers were in bloom. The birds were chirping. It was a beautiful morning. You see where this is going, don't you? (laughs) About 30 minutes into the hike, after I had already drunk about half of my water, I asked my friend, where are we going? Where, Where is this lovely hike taking us? And he pointed basically straight up. And as I looked through the trees to see our destination, I saw a familiar landmark. It was the iconic 14,000-foot Pikes Peak. I looked at my water. I looked at the mountain. I looked back at my water. This was not going to be good. Um, I read recently that the prefrontal cortex is one of the parts of the brain, to, the, the last parts of the brain to develop in men. It, it, it develops much earlier in women. Uh, it's the part of the brain that helps us to do things like analyze risk and make good decisions. I still had a good eight or nine years to go on that. So I looked at my friend straight in the eye, and I said, every 18-year-old guy's life motto, let's do this. (laughs) Uh, The rest of the story consists of a little water and a lot of regret. I won't bore you with the details, but it ends, as you can imagine, with me running out of water, becoming slightly more delirious than usual. Uh, making it to the top of the mountain just long enough to see Kansas, and then, truly, truly, I tell you, passing out in a random person's van and waking up at the bottom. The moral of the story, never underestimate the need for preparation. Well, this morning we have a massive mountain ahead of us. We're starting a new summer series, as Aubrey said, through the book of Ephesians. Mia just read the opening 14 verses for us where Paul takes us on a hike 
and transports us almost immediately to the top, to the heavenly realms, to the throne room of God. And he tells us about God's glory and God's love and God's great grand plan for the whole world. But before we go on this incredible journey with Paul, we we need to prepare uh, for the hike. We need to make sure where we're going. We need to put this beautiful mountain of Ephesians into perspective. And that's what I'd like for us to do this morning. We're going to stay at the bottom of the mountain and just ask two basic questions, very basic but important questions of this book. What is Ephesians and what are we supposed to do with it? What is Ephesians and what are we supposed to do with it? So first, what is Ephesians? Now, that might sound like an overly simplistic question. Um, It seems obvious to us that Ephesians is a letter, and it is. It's an authoritative letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Ephesus. It has a greeting, a body, and a closing, and it looks pretty much like every other letter written in the first century A.D. We might add that it's a doctrinal letter, that Paul is teaching these Christians what they need to know about God and the church and salvation. And of course, that's true as well. Uh, It isn't for nothing that Ephesians has come to be known as uh, the crown of Paul's letters, the queen of the epistles, and even the gospel for the church. But still, there's more. We just have to zoom out to see it, even if it's to 14,000 feet. And when we do that, when we look at Ephesians from a more thematic, grand perspective, what we find is that this doctrinal letter, at its heart, is actually a captivating, cosmic drama. It's a drama of God's victory over evil in Christ. What I mean by that is that this letter is chock full of narratives. Take, for example, the portion of chapter 1 that Mia read for us. It's a story about God's plan for humanity, even before the foundation of the world. When we reach chapter 2, we're confronted with another narrative. It's the story about God's triumph over sin and death, which leads us to yet another narrative in chapter 2, this one about God's triumph over ethnic barriers and divisions. Paul says that Christ killed the hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles. When we get to chapter 3, we hear the story of God's triumph in Paul's life. How God met Paul in his opposition and saved him and entrusted him with the gospel. And even in chapter 4, after Paul seemingly has hit a hinge and shifted his focus, he tells the story of Christ's triumph over the grave. How he burst out of the underworld and then ascended into heaven with the spoils of victory. Chapter 
after chapter, scene after scene, victory after victory. Paul is telling us in dramatic detail how God has retaken control of his world in Christ. So that's what Ephesians is. There's more here than meets the eye. It's more than a doctrinal letter. It's a drama. But that, of course, leads us to our next question, doesn't it? Now that we know what Ephesians is, what are we supposed to do with it? And what might Paul be wanting us to do with it? Well, if Ephesians were simply a letter, uh, then we would study it as history, wouldn't we? As an artifact of the past. Uh, And if Ephesians were simply uh, a compilation of doctrines, then we would mine it for theological truth claims. But if Ephesians, at its heart, is a drama, then you and I can no longer look at it as disengaged, unbiased investigators, no matter what our modern world tells us to do. If Ephesians is a drama, then we must enter into it and faithfully perform it as actors. But, but wait a second, right? Didn't we just say that Ephesians is a drama about God's victory in Christ? Why are we now talking about this book like it has everything to do with us? Um, a few months ago, my wife Mary and I were able to see uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol at Blackfriars Playhouse in, in Stanton. Uh, if you've never been there, one of the fascinating elements of that theater is their use of universal lighting. The, the level of the stage lights are just about equal to the level of the house lights. And and it allows this intimate connection to happen between the authors, uh, the authors, the actors, and the audience. Uh, What happens ultimately is that the audience begins to share in the acting so that the line between actor and audience gets blurred almost entirely. It's really cool. I know this because by some freak accident, we ended up on the very first row and were visited quite abruptly by the ghost of Christmas past. (laughs) Now, I think Paul means something like this when he talks about you and I being in Christ. He means that the line between actor and audience has faded, Uh, that we're no longer spectators, but we're participants in this divine script And that's why Paul can say at the climax of the first portion of his letter, chapter 3, verse 21, to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's because God has included us and even given us starring roles in his great drama of redemption. But there's, there's one problem. We're not the only actors on stage. There are other actors, other participants, 
all around us. And they show up everywhere in Ephesians. Paul calls them the powers. They're the dark forces of evil that have hijacked God's world and hold it captive. Now, I wonder if I just lost some of you. Dark powers. Do we scoff at this? The notion of dark forces, demonic powers. I think that many of us tend to do that. We've been taught to deny the presence of the the invisible. To write it off as ancient superstition, right? And yet, when we get on an airplane, we suddenly become frightfully aware of the invisible bacteria all around us. At least I do, right? It's all over the seatbelt. It's on the air conditioning nozzle. It's on the tray table. Someone sneezes and you ask for an oxygen mask. How do we account for this? This is life in a secular age. We're terrified of bacteria. But if our eyes were open for just a split second to spiritual reality we would be totally undone. Can we not be consistent? Why can we believe in invisible bacteria and let it affect us so much, but not in invisible forces and powers? Is it, I wonder, is it because we can see bacteria under a microscope? That's fair. But can we not also see the effects of evil and evil powers in our world? It's undeniable. The empirical evidence is in front of us continually. Take, for example, the mind-numbing complexity of our welfare system. Now, it's true at the outset that many of these government programs and charities have the best of intentions, but somehow people can still go through the system and feel trapped in poverty. One agency tells them that if they get a job, they'll lose the benefits they need to feed their families. So they go to another agency. And that agency tells them that if they make a certain amount of money, which is slightly less than the money they're receiving from the government already, they'll forfeit being helped any further by that agency. So then they go to another agency that tells them that if they get the help they need from the other two agencies, then they can't be helped by this agency. No wonder people end up feeling discouraged and trapped They are trapped. They're stuck. It's a broken system. And everyone knows it's a broken system. But we just can't seem to fix it. Can we? Could it not be that a greater, darker power is at work behind this? Or take another example. When we say that a crowd can develop a mind of its own. How it can so quickly develop a mob mentality and how otherwise totally reasonable people 
uh, can feed off the momentum of anger and end up committing acts of violence and chaos and destruction. Can we see a greater power behind this? We talk about the spirit of the age. And we talk about companies as having a certain personality, an unpredictable element about them. And we personify these things. But do we ever speak about the dark reality, the powers behind these figures of speech? Paul does. Paul wants us to be aware that we are in a spiritual war, not with people, not with the government, not even with our own enemies, but with the powers themselves. Paul tells us in chapter 6, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. This is reality. This is what's going on. So what's our role as actors? How do we, as a gospel-centered church in Harrisonburg, put up a fight against these dark, menacing powers? I think we need to get really good at doing two things. First, we need to get good at naming the powers, naming them. I don't mean that we're supposed to talk to them directly and rebuke them. No, no we fight them indirectly. We don't deal with the powers themselves. We deal with their visible effects. What are the social patterns of exploitation in Harrisonburg? Where is the systemic injustice in our justice system? Where is the racial and ethnic suspicion and division in our communities? Where in Harrisonburg, where in your own communities and friend groups and relationships does life feel totally crushing and unbearable and unlivable? We need to think hard about these questions. And to do this well, we need to pray for discernment. We live in a culture that is blind, as I've said, to the unseen. Christians in other parts of the world don't have this problem nearly as much. But we Westerners are walking with a limp because we've thrown out in our modern age everything that even remotely resembles superstition and lost much of our ability to see beyond the natural world. It's our responsibility as the church to call out injustice and oppression and perversion. That's our role as actors. But here's the key. We have to do that without condemning culture itself, culture as a whole. We have to remember Always that God loves this world and that he loves human culture. He looks at good art and good music and sport and good food and he smiles. 
And as followers of Jesus, we need to embody that same love for the world, that same love for culture and human flourishing. So we name the powers, but we're gentle with the creation that they victimized, including human beings. Because we know that God wants to bring everything good in this world into the glorious and new world. So we need to live this tension of affirming the goodness of the world while also being brave enough to name the ways it's been corrupted and perverted and broken. So that's one thing. But we don't just need to name the powers. We also need to resist the powers. Paul talks about us putting on the armor of God. And it's not just defensive. It's also an offense. So on the one hand, we shouldn't be afraid to put up a fight against these spiritual forces. But on the other hand, we need to be careful that we're fighting in the right way. The gospel teaches us clearly not to fight fire with fire. The gospel teaches us to radically subvert. So we fight hate with love. We fight poverty with generosity. We fight loneliness with friendship. We overcome evil with good because we worship a God who wins by losing. And that's what Ephesians is all about. It's a drama of God's victory over evil in Christ. It's the story about how God defeated evil in Christ by giving himself up, taking on all the brokenness of the world, and going to death on our behalf. But now, Paul says, God has raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And perhaps the best news of all is that God gives the same resurrection power to us by His Spirit. You see, we're His actors. We're His people. We're His church. We have a role to play, and we even have a battle to fight, but we have the assurance that our real true enemy, our darkest enemy, has been defeated already. And now we fight with the spoils of victory, courage, faithfulness, long-suffering, unconditional, radical acts of love, the spoils of victory on our side. Because Christ is risen, and we've been raised with Him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.